Thank you for tuning in to the Meridian Friends Church podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss any of the sermons posted each week. You can also find more information about our church at www.meridianfriends.org or on Facebook or Instagram by searching Meridian Friends Church. Now, enjoy the sermon. I want to invite you as we go to today's message to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And today is Joy Sunday. We've lit the candle of joy. And so I want to share with you what the Bible says about how to have a party. Did you know that's in the Bible? It's here. It's in Luke chapter 15. It's all about celebration. We're going to view the parable that's found in Luke chapter 15, these three stories that are contained here that Jesus offered. We're going to offer them together, all together, as one story. Jesus offered these words for a specific purpose. And what I want you to notice as we just go to read it as we start, I want you to notice that it is celebration that ties all three of these stories together. Would you stand with me as you're able? And I'm reading from Luke chapter 15. And may we take joy and celebration as seriously as God does. Consider what Jesus said to to a group of joyless people who were standing in front of him. Here's what he said. Now the tax collectors and sinners all gathered around to hear Jesus. And I picture they did so joyfully. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't like it. I love the word NIV uses. They muttered. Can you picture furled eyebrows and folded arms? This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Because of that, Jesus told them these three stories, which are a parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who, quote, do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as the citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, rehearsing his speech. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted his speech. He said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now the kicker in the whole story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Do you remember the furled eyebrows and the crossed arms? When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen? May God help us to be people who celebrate. <laughs> Please be seated. I think the line that I love the most in all of this is this incredible promise that when any one of us turns to faith and away from our direction of sin and self, that there's a party in heaven. Have you ever stopped just to think about that? You know, Christmas season isn't always necessarily described as joyful by everyone. Circumstances that are difficult can be highlighted during this season, wouldn't you agree? When we feel like things should be, they ought to be ideal, they ought to be perfect, our relationships with family members, and somehow the losses in the previous year get more highlighted when we're supposed to be around the table and celebrating, and it's painful in many ways. Sometimes people describe their happy times and their sad times in life like peaks and valleys, hills and valleys. You've heard that before, right? Oh, I'm up on a mountaintop, and then I'm low down in the valley. And I heard someone disagree with that analogy because they believe that there is happiness or joy alongside sadness all the time. And they compared happiness or joy 
alongside sadness, instead of like hills and valleys at separate times, but like train tracks that go over the hills and valleys. Think about that. There's always the presence of difficulty and pain and loss in our life. Right now, every person in this room has a significant loss that they're processing. Wouldn't you agree? Every person here. There's, that's one train track, but there's another train track, and it's one of joy. Even in our, our deepest valleys, there is a reason to celebrate. There are reasons to rejoice, even in the valleys. Are you with me? And oftentimes we lose track, no pun intended, of joy. And for me, as I think about Jesus coming to bring us joy and Advent and, and Christ being born into this world and one of these gifts of love and joy and peace and, um, yeah, I was going to say patience, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Let's see, hope, there it is, peace, love and joy. When I think about these good gifts that Jesus brings and I think about joy, could there be a greater joy than our eternal rescue? Could there be a greater joy than to know that that we're celebrated over as we come home to God and as we are found by Him. I want to focus on that for a few minutes because this celebration of one who is found, who was lost, of one who returns, being worthy of a celebration of angels, well, I think that's a good train track for us to refocus on this morning, don't you? Because we're going to go through the valleys. And in some ways, Christmas is a valley in and of itself. It's a pressure. (laughs) It's a difficult uh, thing for us in many ways. And yet our joy is permanent. It's the difference between happiness and joy, right? It's permanent. It's something that's not fickle or, or gone with the season. If we're looking for happiness in the season, that's one thing. But if we're looking for joy in Christ, that is permanent. So I'm going to give you three reasons that I believe... Christmas is so joyful, and these are permanent reasons. It's because God notices and prizes the lost. If there are three things I could say out of this, these parables, these three stories, this parable, it's that God notices us. It's, it's that God prizes us. Can we just sit here and stop and reflect on that and just think about that? That God takes notice of us even when we wander away. The shepherd has a close count. He's got 99 or 100 sheep. And yet, the parable says, and this is a statement about God and the kingdom, and yet he notices when one of them wanders off. He doesn't just say, well, there's 99%. That's good enough for me. Aren't you glad that God notices when one is missing. That's God's heart for us. We read in these stories, these lessons of the kingdom that Jesus offered, that we're valuable to him. He prizes us. He says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are so upset that Jesus is hanging out with sinners and apparently having a good time doing so. He loves them. He celebrates them. They're muttering. And Jesus said to them, well, It's not just like a shepherd. It's also like someone who lost a coin. Now, commentators have speculated that this isn't just a coin, but perhaps it was a piece of a headband or a necklace that would have had 10 silver coins on it. 
And so when one of the coins is missing, the whole piece of jewelry is worthless. They, they focus on the one missing, just like with the shepherd focused on the one missing. She would focus on the one missing. And so it says that this lady turns her house upside down to find this missing coin. You know how it is, right? You lose your keys. It becomes the focus for the next, I don't know, 30 seconds to three hours. <laughs> depends, on, depends on how well your keys are hiding. <laughs> but it's all that you can think about. Well, sure, you've got other possessions and, and other things, but this is the one possession that you're totally focused on. Why? Because it's lost. And to you, it's valuable. It's something that you need. Me and my personality, I hate losing things but I do it more often than I'd like to admit. <laughs> I, I think that I'm organized, and then I suddenly realize, you know, when you're more organized, it's more of a problem because you're more efficient. You moved it somewhere, and it's not just laying somewhere out in the open. <laughs> no idea. Do you ever play hide-and-seek with yourself? Is, is this just me getting older? I don't know. <laughs> but you focus on it. You tear the house upside down. She, she, she devotes her entire focus to it. Christmas is God turning everything upside down. It's God sending his one and only son in the flesh to find us. It's God's, we're on his heart. We're, he's concerned for us. This, if you will, these first two stories, they are God's initiative. They're God noticing that something is needing. They're noticing that someone is missing, that something is missing. And, and so God searches, God notices. Secondly, I think that's my point. God searches. I'm going to say two things. God searches and God waits for us. It's one thing for God to notice. It's one thing for God to value us. It's another thing for him to do something about it. And what I want you to notice is that he does different things under different circumstances. Here's what I mean. With, with regard to the woman who lost the coin, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? But then, when you come to the father who's lost a son in the third story, which I haven't got to yet, but I will now, it's not about searching for him, it's about waiting for him. Have you ever noticed that difference? But while he was still a long way off, this is the prodigal son finally coming to his senses, and he doesn't like starving, and he doesn't like eating with the pigs, that, which is a detestable thing for someone to do of the Jewish faith. I mean, it's a picture of the lowest of low positions he could be in. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. But he didn't go looking for him. He waited for the son to come until he was within view. Have you ever noticed that? Here's something else I don't know if you've ever noticed about these three parables, because I'm sure you've heard all kinds of sermons about the lost coin and the lost son, or the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. I mean, church art is full of Jesus, the shepherd, picking up the little lamb and putting him over, you know, with rescuing him with a crook. And, and, and I know we've thought about this, this lost coin. That, that one's maybe the most obscure of these, maybe less popular. And we've certainly heard a lot about the parable of the lost son. But have you ever put all three of these stories together? 
Actually, that's what Luke does. Have you ever noticed that Luke says, then Jesus told them this parable, and it's singular. He doesn't say, and then Jesus told them these parables. And so that's actually a translation of what's in the text. Luke is saying that all three of these go together. And when you do that, I think you see something really important about this one parable that tells about the kingdom of God, these three stories that are linked together. I told you to look for the fact that celebration ties them all together, right? Well, let me say one way in which these three stories are different, and I've already hinted at it. With the sheep that's lost, with the coin that's lost, the one who's lost it searches. They drop everything and they go find it. The shepherd puts himself in peril to go find that lost sheep. And, and the person who lost this part of their jewelry or the coin does everything she can to find it. But then, I think when you come to the climax of the story, do you notice that the parable of the lost son is much longer than the other two? It's obviously where Jesus was going with the other two. We notice that the father does not drop everything to go rescue the son. Have you ever wondered why that is? I mean, was the sheep more lost than the lost son? Or is the coin more valuable than the lost son? Probably not. Certainly not. The answer as to why the father doesn't go searching, I think, is evident to anybody who's ever parented for very long. The answer is, sheep and coins and boys and girls are very different from one another. Jesus offering this parable is saying to us that his most prized lost one is you and me, people. And that as people, we get to choose whether or not we come back. The parable could read differently, if I can explain this. So the father could have sent spies to find out what's going on with the son. Could have sent his servants. He says in there, they're servants, right? The end. Could have sent his servants out there to find out how his son is doing in his fear of what's going on. And surely they would have given him reports. It is not good. I mean, He's blowing your inheritance. It's gone. He's at the bottom of the bottom. He's feeding pigs. He's starving. And at that point, what the dad could have done is the dad could have sent the servants over there or gone himself and dragged that boy back by the ear home. And he could have made him go into his bedroom and sit down. And you just stay in this room until you can play nice. And until you can come out and say how sorry you are for making an embarrassment of our family, making an embarrassment of yourself, for causing us all kinds of pain and spending this inheritance that never comes back. He could have done that. But how well does that work? Well, sure, the son sits there. Oh, golly, I, I really do think my dad's right. I've really made a mess of things. I, I got to go take care of this. Is that what boys do? Or little girls sometimes? <laughs> no, they say, oh, that's just like my dad. I, I, he pulled me out at the critical moment. I was just about to make it big in the pig business. 
I, I, I was, I was going to be the Oscar Meyer of the far country. I was going to sell pork like Jimmy Dean. And then my dad ruined everything. But as soon as I can, I'm going to go back out and I'm going to prove it to him. I'm going to show him that he was wrong. Parents learn this wisdom, don't we? Parenting is such a fine balance between the rules involved and grace involved. We celebrated a child dedication where we prayed for parents in this journey of what it will be like for them as their son grows and makes decisions for himself about his faith. The hard part, one of the hard parts, <laughs> one of the hard parts about parenting is this balance of how to set the table and then how to give independence to make a decision. As parents, we know enough to wait for our son's return. And can we just stop together and say how hard that is? How hard that is to know that that has to be their decision. We can't, like a sheep, take a stick and bring them back. We, we can't just dust the house and grab them and stick them back on the necklace. They're people. The father waits on the porch for his son's return. It's actually a beautiful picture, isn't it? God so loved this world that, that he gave his one and only son. He, he did what needed to be done to give us a way home. He, he did everything in love. And he allows us to choose our response to that. He doesn't force us. He allows us to walk our own way. He waits. The part of the story I think we all probably like best is the third one, is that God celebrates our coming home. The Father is delighted when we come home. We can understand that, right? I don't know if there's a pain greater in the world than to offer someone your love and for it not to be reciprocated. And I don't know that there's a greater joy in the world either than to offer your love and sacrifice to someone and for them to reciprocate it. The Father's delighted. Bring the robe. He doesn't have shoes on. Get him the sandals. How about the signet ring, which means you belong here with the family. Go kill Daisy and let's have a party. He goes, Luke, as, as he's describing what Jesus had to say, Jesus went overboard on all the details so that we get the point. This is an important celebration. The context of this parable is pretty important as well. It's about the religious folks who are not very happy about people being welcomed home. You remember that, right? 
Look at verse 28 and 29. This is how the story ends. And just know that if this was just about, if this was a story that was just about us coming home to God, and that's certainly part of it, it would have stopped there. But there's a reason Jesus told this story. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young skinny goat, much less a fatted calf, so that I could celebrate with my friends. And this is a check for all of us, isn't it? Grace. Christmas is about grace. Christmas is about God-loving people who don't deserve it. We lose our way sometimes as religious people thinking that somehow we are more deserving than another. Well, at least the religious people in Jesus' day did. And I think they recognized who the cranky brother is, don't you? The context was there in verses 1 to 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. I love it how so often in Scripture, people are tattling to Jesus on the misdeeds of others. Did you know Jesus doesn't need us to tattle? (laughs) He already knows. Why is Christmas so joyful? It's exactly because it's undeserved. God's love for us is not fickle. I don't know how it could be better demonstrated than in a parable like this one, where it's precisely the one who is foolish, who walks away and makes their life very painful, which it didn't have to be, who is so valued, so sought after, and so celebrated. That's grace. Luke 15 is a picture of our relationship between God and us. And I was thinking about the Psalms that say we can give God praise with the creation. Familiar with that? With all creation sing. Creation does sing God's praise, doesn't it? You know, there's trees outside that are an absolute miracle of biology and nature. It rained last night. Rain, we don't think much of it, but it works because of gravity. The rain falls and it soaks into the ground. In other seasons, these trees are pretty dormant right now. There are membranes around the roots of a tree that absorb the moisture through its capillaries. And then in defiance to gravity, the tree capillates with pressure the water up through the trunk and out to the leaves. I mean, is that miraculous? (laughs) Well, trees do this. And then when there are leaves on, I know it's December in Idaho, but when there are leaves on, 
the leaves breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen in this process called photosynthesis. But if you think about it, does creation have a choice as to whether or not to do that? It's just their DNA. It's, it's what they do. Constantly, trees are praising God and demonstrating the beauty of his creation by simply doing what they're made to do. I mean, what if trees went on strike? It's, well, I'm tired of these humans that are breathing in this good oxygen and putting out all this carbon dioxide. It's work, work, work all the time. <laughs> and trees don't do that. God's created order is beautiful and it's mysterious and it's amazing. And do you realize in the creation narratives, the God who created the heavens and the earth, what an incredible thing to say. God created the heavens and the earth. That God especially created human beings and he created you and I in his likeness. In that, he gave us a capacity for relationship with him. He gave us the ability to walk away from him if we choose. When we get tired of doing the right thing that we're designed to do, we can freely walk away. And the miracle of that is that God lets us. I mean, the parable is absurd. What dad would give a child half the inheritance just because he asked for it to go blow it? Doesn't sound like good parenting. Just remember, parables always have one point. Don't take that as good parenting advice. But the point is, God freely allows us to do what we choose to do. What do you suppose a God with that kind of power who can, I don't know, make trees do that? What do you suppose a God with that kind of power is going to do when... I don't know, people like us, so small and powerless compared to him, decide we're going to walk our own way and defy him. Well, this is grace. He chooses us. He notices when our heart is not close to him. He provides everything that's needed to come home. And God waits to celebrate. He watches. I love the picture of God on the porch. I've heard those sermons too about, about that part of this and, and I think that's important. We're made to glorify God. We're made to praise Him. We're made to love Him. And God did everything that was needed for us to find him. He's already found you. There's a newsflash. <laughs> he already knows. I've said this several times, but it's so pivotal in my understanding of faith. The word confess doesn't mean to tell God something he doesn't know. It means to agree with God. Con is together. So together you're saying, yes, God, that was wrong. That's what true confession is. It's not just about saying, yeah, I did this and I messed up and I hung out with the pigs. 
It's a way of saying, God, you were right all along. You had a way for me and I walked away from it. God welcomes us home. And it's crazy to think, but there isn't anything we have to do to earn it. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came to the world to save it. Is there joy in that? Gut check for us as a church. Can we celebrate that when others do that as well? So easy to be the cranky older brother thinking of how somebody else's sin cost me. How am I going to get that inheritance back? And to be those overeducated scholars who understand the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus is quoting and, and to furl their eyebrows and say, if you really understood Jesus, you wouldn't welcome people like that. There's a joy available that's so far beyond our circumstance. I'd like to invite you to bow your head with me. And I want to lead us in a prayer. If there's anyone within the sound of my hearing that knows their need to come home spiritually, I want to invite you to pray. Because I firmly believe God welcomes you. And I'm completely convinced that as you pray in the silence of your heart, He hears you. He's been waiting. If this prayer of confession fits your prayer to Him, I invite you to pray silently with me. Jesus Christ, I know my sin. I know that you know my sin. You see it all. Yet your decision is to cherish me, to prize me, to love me, to welcome me home, to throw a banquet, to put a ring on my finger and sandals on my feet. Jesus, thank you for bearing the consequence of my sin on the cross. Lord, help me to keep my heart open to your grace. Teach me, help me to follow you with my life. As much as I understand, as much as I have, as much as I am, I renounce my sin. I don't want it. I want you. I want to be who you made me to be, somebody who loves you and honors you. Jesus, by faith, I accept the free gift of your forgiveness. 
And I thank you for your bloodshed for me. I thank you for the joy of Christmas. I pray that I can live into that. I thank you that you welcome me to it. Lord, thank you for not making us to be a sheep or a coin. Thanking you. Thank you, Lord, for making us human with a free will and a free decision that we may give to you the gift that you long for this season of freely choosing to love you. In Christ we pray. Amen.